Oh, it's, uh, it's brilliant to be uh, together this morning, and uh, I want to start things a, a little bit differently and get you talking to each other as we kind of uh, kind of begin things, and I just share a bit of the message which is on my heart. So I've got a bit of a morbid question for you, okay? I'm sorry, it's a bit of a, it's not the most uh, one that's going to bring joy to your hearts, but you know, just have a little bit of a chat about it. Here we go. So if you could know when you were going to die to the day, would you want to know? And if you could know how you were going to die, would you want to know that too? So why don't you just turn to someone near to you, someone around you. If you don't know anybody, just introduce yourselves and have a brief chat. Make sure no one's left out of on their own. You've got 30 seconds. Go for it. And no yes and no answers. Let's tell each other why. Okay, fantastic. If uh, you want to come back and uh, we'll go back together again and uh, you can come and tell me some of your answers afterwards, that would be, that would be great. I'd love to hear. Um, I'm not really sure how I would answer those questions, if I'm honest, but I lean more towards the idea that I don't want to know. And maybe that's because I've seen so many of these kind of films and TV shows. Maybe you've seen them too. Well, only one of the more recent ones is, the, is Flash, the last season of, of Flash that we watched. You know, these kind of things where somebody knows they've been told somehow what it is that's going to happen in the future. Maybe there's time travel involved or there's something else going on. Because they know what's going to happen, they didn't then decide they're going to do everything they can to try and avoid it and to stop that thing happening only to discover that all of the different things that they do to avoid it are the things that lead to it happening in the first place. And so you just kind of end up in this horrible place where you're wrestling and whether you just accept it and just give into it or you're fighting against it. But really, you just end up wrestling with this whole thing and it controls how you live. So I don't think that I'd, I'd want to know. One person who didn't have that luxury, who didn't have the luxury of not knowing how they were going to die. And even though he did, he didn't do anything to try and avoid it, is Jesus. He knew not only the day that he was going to die, but exactly how it was going to happen. He knew that it was going to involve him being betrayed. He knew that it it was going to mean that he faced false accusations and he was put on trial and that he was mocked and that he was beaten and that he was tortured and eventually that he would be crucified on a cross. And he knew that on top of all of that, as he hung there on the cross, the the weight of the sins, the weight of the wrong thoughts and attitudes and actions and the rebellion against God of every single person for all of time would be weighed on him. And a week before all of this happens, no one else knows. No one else understands. He's on his own. Carrying this burden, carrying this weight, knowing what's coming. And he's tried to give some of his friends hints. He's tried to say to them what's coming and they just don't get it. And so we read in Matthew 20 towards the end, this is just as he's kind of coming into this last week of his, his life. He's traveling into Jerusalem and Jesus pulls to one side his closest friends. He pulls to one side the, the 12 disciples. And he tries to explain to them what's going to happen over this next week. How he's going to be arrested and mocked and spat on. How he's going to be beaten and crucified. And then how three days later he's going to rise again to to a new life. And he's graphic in it. He doesn't hold his punches. He's pretty clear in what he says. But at the end of it all, I still don't think they get it. They're all caught up in in the excitement of what's happening and how amazing it is. 
Jesus is arriving into Jerusalem and thousands upon thousands of people have gathered and they're cheering him on. They go, yes! They're saying, Hosanna, like we've been singing. Here comes the one who's going to save us. This whole prayer that they've had for someone to save them, they're now directing to Jesus. Lord, save us! There's all this excitement that Jesus is coming in and he's about to kind of overthrow the Roman Empire and he's about to become king in this place. And the disciples are there and they're with Jesus and the crowds are around and they're cheering them and it's like they're rock stars. And as they're looking ahead, enjoying this kind of popularity, but they look ahead as they look ahead. Their expectation is that this time is coming when not only will they be popular like rock stars, but they're going to be powerful. They're going to be powerful because Jesus is going to become king. And they're going to be at the seats of government around him. They're going to be sat on his right and on his left. They're going to have authority. So not only will they be the most popular people, they'll be the most powerful people in the nation. And they think that in their imagination, as they try and think about the future, this is, this is where things are going. And so they start to argue with each other about who's the greatest. They start to argue with each other about who's going to get what seats in the government. Who's going to be the most powerful? Who's going to have the most authority? Who deserves it? What it is that they think they're entitled to. How it is they think they're better than one another. How people they think should treat them as a result of all of that. And Jesus just told them. I know when I'm going to die. I know how it's going to happen, it's, and it's coming, it's this week. I'm going to be betrayed and tortured and mocked and crucified. And they're so focused on themselves that they simply don't get it. And even though Jesus talks to them about their attitude and he talks to them about how self-focused they are and how this isn't the way things are meant to work in his kingdom, this isn't the way that, that he's taught them, that his kingdom being great isn't about having power, it's about serving. It's not about getting status and, and privileges and perks, it's about loving. Even though Jesus does all of that, the argument just carries on. And so they arrive in Jerusalem and it's, it's the time of the Passover. It's the time when the Jewish people all come together to, to remember and to celebrate how God had rescued them from slavery out of the nation of Egypt. And Jesus and his followers, they're Jews, so they gather about to do this too. And as they eat this meal together, Jesus, again, he, he seizes another opportunity to try and get across to them what's about to happen. And he starts talking about how he's going to die and why he needs to die. And so he, he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body, broken for you. And then he takes the cup and he says, this, this cup is like my blood, my blood which is going to be poured out and shed for you so that you can be forgiven. From now on when you eat the bread and when you drink the cup, I don't want you just to be remembering something that happened so many years ago when you were brought out of slavery from Egypt. I want you to be remembering and celebrating how I've rescued you from slavery to sin. How I've set you free to have life in its fullness. How I've set you free to be able to have a relationship with God. To be able to have hope in this life and for eternity. And the disciples still don't get it. 
We read in Luke 22, verse 24, that even after this, straight after this vivid example which Jesus has given them, they're still arguing about who's the greatest. And you know, if if I was Jesus in this moment, I think I'd lose my temper with them. If I was Jesus in this moment, to be honest, I think I'd be ready to just walk out and leave them to it and be done. Despite years of relationship with him, Years of walking with him and spending time with him. Years of hearing his teaching about how God's way isn't about what we can get. It's about what we can give. How It's not about how we can have the most and be the greatest. It's about how we can love him and love others. Despite everything that he's poured into them as his closest friends and followers, they still don't get it. They're still just as selfish as ever. And if I was Jesus at this point, I'd be ready to give up on them. And yet Jesus doesn't do that. Do you know the great news is that Jesus will never do that to you either. And as we we look to bring Jesus in focus, today we get such a beautiful picture of who he is and his heart for each of us and how he responds to us. We're going to be looking mainly at John chapter 13, and this is what we read in John 13, verse 1. John writes, it was just before the Passover festival. The festival is this whole week of celebration that begins with a Passover meal. So that's where we're at. And Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. He knew what was coming. He knew that he was about to die. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And this is how Jesus responds to the people who are with him. This is how Jesus responds to to you and to me. Even when we don't get it, even when we make a mess of everything, even in those times when we know we've heard Jesus teaching again and again and again and we're still not doing it and we don't change. Jesus, instead of being at that point where he writes us off, which think so many of us would probably do he responds in love he responds in love to you and he responds in love to me and when John writes that he loved them to the end this isn't just saying that he loved them till the end of his life you know though he did what it really means if you if you kind of look at the wording and the way that it's put together is that Jesus loved them completely that he loved them perfectly that he loved them with an everlasting love That's how Jesus loves you. That's how he loves me. He loves you completely. He loves you perfectly. He loves you with an everlasting love. No matter what that you have done, no matter what you've failed to do, no matter the mess that you've made of things, no matter how many times that he's tried to put his finger on something and you've ignored him, He still responds to you with love. And so John goes on. He says, The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. What John wants us to get across is that Jesus not only knew that he was going to die, he knew who he was, he knew his identity. And he was secure in that identity. 
He knew that he had all authority and power. That he knew that he had come from God. That he was the creator of the world. That he knew that he was going back to God. That a time was coming when he was going to be back on the throne in heaven as the king of kings. He knew he was worthy of worship. And that one day every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And so while the disciples argue over who's the greatest, Jesus knew he was the greatest. Not only the greatest and most powerful person in the room, but the greatest and most powerful person in the universe, in all of time, in all of creation. And so he knows who he is and he knows the power that he has. Try and put yourselves in Jesus' shoes. Knowing you have all of that power and authority, knowing that's your identity, and knowing at the same time a group of people are meeting in a room just down the street plotting how to kill you. Knowing at the same time that the man sat at your left, sat right next to you, is just waiting for his opportunity to slip out the back door and betray you. What would you do? In the midst of everything that you knew in that moment and the power and the authority that you had, what would be your next move? Well, this is what John tells us. He writes, so, knowing all of this, because of all of this, Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to, washing his, to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And it can be easy for us to miss just how shocking this is. How this one act would have silenced every person in the room. It's like Jesus thinks to himself, okay, I've told you, and I've told you, and I've told you, and I've told you, and you still don't get it. I've taught you about how it's following me is about loving God and loving people. How what it is to be great in my kingdom is to serve. How how you it's not about being self-focused in all these kind of ways, and you still don't get it. You're still focused on what it is that you think you deserve and your position and your status and what you're entitled to and what's, how you think it's fair for people to treat you. You're not getting it from my teaching, so let me try and show you what it looks like instead. And if you can try and imagine that night to just try and get hold of something as to why this was so shocking. Jesus and his followers are are sitting, eating a meal together. And, and Da Vinci, you'll have all seen the kind of the famous picture, if we can put it up, of, uh, of Da Vinci um, and the painting of the Last Supper. Da Vinci gets it all wrong. It would have looked nothing like this. They wouldn't have been sat on chairs on a long table all on one side. and Probably would have looked something a bit more like this. Which is called a triclinium. It's a, a low table right down near the floor. And they would recline around it on pillows, with, resting on their left arm while they would eat with their right. And so they would be 
pretty snug close to each other. And as you moved around and you reached across to try and get some food or you, you turned to, to somebody on the other side, though the risk was that your feet would end up in somebody else's face. And nobody wants feet in your face while you're trying to enjoy a meal. You know, feet just aren't that nice, are they? But these feet were dirty feet. And why are their feet dirty? Well, because they were all so focused on how important they were, on their status and what they deserved, on the place that they should have. So focused on winning that argument that none of them wanted to do the job that needed to be done. You you, you see, in that day, you would have worn sandals on your feet. And as you were walking around, your feet would have been exposed to whatever was on the street. And there would have been animals on the street. And where there are animals, there are the things that animals leave behind that are smelly and messy. And the streets would have been dusty. And in the middle of a city, there probably would have been sewage around the place and muck and rubbish. And so as you walked around, your feet, they got dirty. It was inevitable. Feet weren't considered to be very nice. And so in Eastern cultures, one of the great insults, even today, they've kind of kept hold of this kind of, uh, this kind of value, and is that one of the greatest insults is to show a person the sole of your foot. It was a sign of huge disrespect. And it was a, as you did it, as you kind of see the sole of someone's foot, as they show that to you or hand that to you, it's like they're saying, you're under my feet. You're dirt. You're nothing. And that meant that the lowest job for the lowest slave was to wash feet. Because as they did it, they had to accept the fact, I'm dirt. I'm nothing. And what happens then is that the disciples are so busy arguing over who is the greatest that none of them are willing to do the job that means that they're the lowest. That they come under everybody else. And so they come in and they recline at the, the table and they start eating this meal and they're all arguing over who's the greatest, over who's most important and who shouldn't have to be the one who has to clean the feet. Justifying why it should be someone else and not them. And as this argument goes on, all of a, a sudden they're interrupted by the sound of water being poured into a basin and the basin being slid across the floor. And to their shock and amazement, their leader, their lord, their teacher, their master, in their mind, the future king of Israel, the one that they would all agree was greater than any of them, has taken off his outer garment, wrapped a towel around his waist, and gotten down on his knees. To do the job that only the lowest of the lowest slave would do. Imagine the most humiliating and demeaning task that you can think of. And that's what's going on here. 
Um, Rosie and I, we, we stayed in a static caravan a couple of weeks back. And, you know, whenever you go to these kind of places, it's, it's in hotel rooms, it's in all sorts. You always see in the bathroom, don't you, a little sign-up which tells you not to flush things down the toilet um, because otherwise the toilet will get blocked. And so there's one of these kind of signs there that you'd expect. But I loved it. There was a little bit that they tagged onto it. And um, so there's, there's this kind of normal sign, don't flush things down the toilet because otherwise the toilet's going to get blocked. And then it, it had this little line where it said, we could, um, when, when we've got to clean the pipes, that's our least favorite job signed the park maintenance team. And, um, and I loved that little sign. It was just made it personal in terms of you could just kind of picture and imagine the job that they end up having to do is they've got to kind of clean out the pipes and things around the caravans and stuff. And that's the kind of thing Jesus is doing here. He's doing the one job that no one wants to do. The king of the universe The one who for eternity had been sat on the throne of heaven with angels around him crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is him on his knees with a towel around his waist. Washing and drying his disciples' feet, doing the one job that meant that he was dirt. It was nothing. And just think about this for a moment. Jesus even washed Judas' feet. He knew that Judas had already decided to betray him. And as Jesus knelt down and washed his feet, knowing what comes next, I can only think that Judas had contempt for Jesus as he did it. And yet Jesus still loved him. He still served him. He still put his love into action for him and met his need. Was willing to come under his feet. And you know, this is incredible news for us because if you're here and you're thinking, you know what? What I've done is horrible or I don't deserve this or there's this or there's that, which means that how could Jesus possibly... Because what we see here is that Jesus loves you so much. That no matter what it is that you have done, no matter what it is that you've failed to do, no matter how it is that you might feel, he still loves you and is still willing to wash your feet, to serve you, to meet your greatest needs. Still inviting you to be his friend. And so as Jesus goes round washing the disciples' feet, they're stunned and they're silenced and they can't believe what they're seeing. And it's so shocking as he's going round each of them that this is then what we read. John writes that Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. And do you know what this is? This is pride. This is Peter saying, no, I won't let you serve me. It's not right that you serve me. And you know, while we might not like to admit it, sometimes we can be like Peter. 
You know, some of us struggle with the idea that we need help. Some of us struggle with the idea because we, we want to be self-sufficient. We want to stand on our own two feet. We don't like to, to think that we need things from other people. Some of us struggle with the idea of receiving help because we don't think we deserve it. And so we exclude ourselves from it and we withdraw ourselves from it. That's Peter right here. I won't let you do that for me. But Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now, I think it's important here that we get that this is about more than just foot washing. You know, if we make this just about foot washing and what's going on on the service, then what's Jesus saying? He's saying, well, unless you let me humble you and do the job that you wouldn't do, then you're fired. You're off the team. I don't want anything more to do with you. That's how it plays out, isn't it? And that doesn't make any sense. I want to suggest that Jesus is switching things up here. And talking about something deeper. That's why why he says to Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing for you now, but later in the future you'll understand. Because he wants to get across to Peter that he needs to be, be humble enough to recognize his need and allow Jesus to serve him. To recognize his need and allow Jesus to, to wash him clean. And that while in that moment what that looked like is that he allowed Jesus to wash his feet, then in the future he would understand what Jesus was really doing and what he was all about as he was preparing them for the fact that they needed to be humble enough to recognize their need. To recognize for Peter that he was dirty before God. That because of the sin in his life, because of the wrong things that he's done, the selfish attitudes that he had, that he was dirty and he needed to be washed clean spiritually. And that that could only happen as he humbly allowed Jesus to wash him clean. Through accepting his sacrifice that he'd made on the cross as his blood was shed for him. And so Jesus is really saying to Peter, unless you let me take care of your need for cleansing, then there is simply no way that you can walk with me. And it may be that some of you here feel somehow that you have no need of cleansing. That you're not that bad, you're not that dirty. You're a morally good person and you try and do the right thing and to do good things and say good things and treat people well and you, you, you try to be good. And so you don't really, why would you really need cleansing? You're pretty good on your own. Or you might have put it into words, that's kind of just really what's going on in the background. And, and if that's you, then Jesus says to you what he said to Peter that night. Unless you recognize that you need me. Unless you allow me to wash you clean. You have no part of me in this life. And you can't be with me in heaven in the next. That's sobering, isn't it? And I don't know how you respond to that, but I love how Peter does. He does a complete U-turn and he's all in and he says in verse 9, Then Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. 
Jesus answered, those who had, have had a bath need only what to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. And this sounds a little bit obscure, but actually the idea here is really simple. You know, once you take a bath in the morning, you don't take it, need to take another bath for the rest of the day, do you? Unless you've done some kind of crazy amount of exercise and you're pretty stinky, then maybe it's a good idea. You know, but generally you, you'll have a bath or a shower in the morning and that's you're done for the rest of the day. But you might get mucky hands doing DIY. Working on the car. Or you might get mucky hands as you, you kind of start working with raw meat and chopping it up and, and things. And so you know you need to wash your hands. And in the same way, once we've accepted Jesus and we've received his forgiveness, we're washed completely clean. Our sins for the past, the present and the future, they're dealt with. But we all still do things that we, we shouldn't do. And we say things that we shouldn't say. And we think things we shouldn't think. And we have attitudes that we shouldn't have. And so Jesus says, you've got to have your feet washed. Over and over again. You need to confess your sins to God. You need to keep on admitting how you need him. And allowing him to wash you clean. Why? Because if we try and ignore it and pretend it's not there and like we're all just okay and we don't need God's help anymore, then these things create a brokenness in our relationship with him. So John goes on and he writes, Jesus, when he had dealt with Peter and finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. I doubt they did. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Jesus is saying, you might have been arguing over who's the greatest, but really all of you know that I'm the one who you declare to be Lord. I'm the one you declare to be teacher and master, and you're right, that's who I am. And that's the respect that I'm due. That's the position I'm entitled to with all of its privileges. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, John goes on. You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. What did Jesus do? He did the job that no one else wanted to do. Why did he do it? Because he saw the need. What motivated him? Love. Love for every person there, both the people who believed in him and the one who was going to betray him. He loved them the same. Jesus is saying, I've set you an example. I'm the one with all power and all authority. I'm your Lord and Master, the one entitled to respect and privilege, the one who deserves to be worshipped. And this is how I choose to use my position. In love, I choose to serve. Stop arguing over which of you is the greatest and the position you think you should have or the way you think people should treat you. What it is you think you're entitled to. And look at what I've done. Do what I've done. Instead of asking questions like, what's my right? 
How do I deserve to be treated? What am I entitled to? Ask yourself, how can I leverage what I have? How can I leverage my position, my status, my job? How can I leverage what I'm entitled to? All of my resources for the sake of others. To serve others. And to put others first. And you know, this is what we should be known for as believers. This is what we should be known for as a church. Now, people should look at us and say, I've not, I don't really know about this whole Jesus thing, but my goodness me, I'm glad they're here. Just look at what they do. Using our resources and our time and our position, everything that we have for the sake of others. Doing the things that no one else will do. Because we see the need and we love people enough to go low and do something about it. And that's why as a church we operate the food bank. That's why so many of you give your time to, to serve in the food bank, but also to serve in, in other ways in the church or out in the community. That's why we're looking to start Transform St. Austell, which we were talking about at the Vision Night a while ago, to go out into the community and to, to, to clean beaches and parks and do the jobs which need to be done, but no one's doing. Well, no one wants to do. It's because there is a general call of God on your life and a general call of God on my life to serve. Not just to do what we like doing or we feel called or we feel gifted to or we enjoy but to do the jobs that no one else wants to do. Because it's an opportunity as we do that to show our love for Jesus. And it's an opportunity as we do that to put into, our, into action our love for others. But you know this just doesn't, maybe it does for you, but for me certainly, it just doesn't come naturally, does it? You know, no one sits and dreams about their future as a child and thinks, you know what I want to be when I grow up? I want to be a servant. I want to put everybody else first. You know, no one naturally puts other people first, do we? You know, you just have to look at a baby or a toddler and see the way they want to cling onto their toys to know it doesn't come naturally. But you know what? I can look at myself and what I might see it in a toddler, I see it in myself too. I might be able to hide a little bit better. Hopefully I can hide a little bit better than a toddler. But you know, it's still there. You know, I see what looks like the biggest or the best piece of cake. And I might hold back from taking it. I might be very British and say, oh no, you go ahead. Inside, I want that cake. We laugh and we know it's true, but you know what? It's not right. You know, yesterday I was um, coming out from here and we, we'd been up to Exeter. I was coming out from here and we are driving through the estate and got to the exit, coming out towards the roundabout and there was a Range Rover um, coming the other way. And the Range Rover only needed to reverse about two meters back to allow me to be able to get past them and he just sat there and he wouldn't move. And everything in me felt I shouldn't have to be the one who has to reverse around this silly awkward corner with cars parked at the side of it. I shouldn't be the one who has to do that. You've got less far to go. It's not my job. 
Everything in me was focused on my rights, what I'm entitled to, what's fair for me. Why I shouldn't be the one to be inconvenienced. In the end, I moved my car because he wasn't going to, but I didn't like doing it. The reality is that in more ways than we would like to admit, we're often like the disciples. I've heard the teaching of Jesus. I've lived alongside him in relationship with him for years. I know what it is that he says. But I'm too busy focused on myself. And why I shouldn't have to do it. What my rights are, what I deserve. To actually allow Jesus' teaching to change me. And to put it into action. You know, for us to choose to become servants, to do the jobs that no one else wants to do, and if we're honest, often we don't want to do, for us to put others first, it just doesn't come naturally. The Holy Spirit has to begin to transform us, to transform our hearts, to transform our thinking, to pour his love into us for other people, to give us a security in ourselves so we're not constantly worried about how other people see us and wanting to look good. The Holy Spirit has to enable us to be people who are willing to humble ourselves. To serve others, but also to admit that we need Jesus' help for ourselves too. And you know, really, I think that's what this whole passage is about. It's about humility. It's about being willing to follow Jesus' example and humble ourselves. To lay aside our sense of our rights and what we think we're due and how we think people should treat us and what's fair or not fair and put others first and simply serve. And it's about humbling yourself by admitting that you need him and allowing Jesus to serve you. Confessing to Jesus your wrong thoughts and attitudes and words and actions Admitting your need for forgiveness and allowing him to wash you clean. Admitting that actually, as much as you wish it was the case, everything is not all right. You're not as great as you want people to think. Admitting to Jesus how much you need his help to follow his example, to put others first and that you just can't do it on your own. And let's be honest, if we're going to get real, humility is hard, isn't it? It can be easy sometimes to think, well, I'll go and do the dirty job and serve because actually I know deep down that people will think I'm pretty great because I've done it. Real humility is hard. Bowing the knee, admitting we need help, putting other people first, laying aside our rights, our sense of what's fair and our reputation, what we deserve, it's hard. So before, we're going to come to communion in a minute, but before we come to communion, 
I want you to honestly answer a couple of questions. And I want you to try and do these questions now. We're just going to put them on hold. And as we go into communion, there'll be time for you just to spend with God and to rest in him and to try and answer these questions. Well, here we go. Number one, in what ways do you need Jesus to wash you clean again today? This is the spiritual reality of foot washing. If you believe in Jesus, you are completely clean and he's washed you clean and you're secure in that, but you know you still sin. And if you claim you don't, James says you're a liar. You still get dirty feet. So take time to confess your sins and allow Jesus to wash you clean. And his promise is that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us of all our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Question two, how can you use what you have for the sake of others? We all have something. So in what way can you follow Jesus' example and instead of being focused on yourself and your own rights and what you feel you deserve, How can you put other people first? What needs do you see around you? And how can you be the one to meet them? Whether it be needs that people have or the community has or that your workplace has. And then ask Jesus to help you because this does not come easy. It doesn't come naturally and you can't do it on your own. And so as we come into a time of communion, a time when we focus on how for our sake, because he loved us so that we could be forgiven and washed clean, Jesus went low. He humbled himself. He wasn't only willing to, to, to leave the throne room of heaven and the praise of the angels to come and walk amongst us on this earth, but he was willing to be beaten and tortured and mocked and spat on and crucified because he saw our need He knew what he had, and he was willing to do something about it, even if that meant him having to go through all of that. So that we could be forgiven and have hope in this life and for all eternity. That's what we celebrate. That's what we remember as we come to communion. So take time to thank Jesus and to praise him and to receive again from him. But also just take time before you come and collect the bread and the cup, to answer these questions honestly before God. And if you're here and you're not a believer, then this is a great opportunity because Jesus is reaching out to you and he loves you and he is inviting you to, to respond to him and to come and to give your life to him to accept what it is that he's done for you. And for every person who has accepted Jesus, for every person who's received his forgiveness and accepted him as king, Communion is available and open to you and you are welcome to come and and receive and just join in with us and celebrate who Jesus is and what he's done for you.